Blog Talk Radio. Marcia Joyner, and this is Betrayed by Hospice, brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed, Whistleblower's Life, and our producer, Marty Oakley. Most hospices have gone rogue, and I couldn't tell you which ones are safe, and so personally, I avoid them all. Today, they enroll people who should never be enrolled because they can still be treated with medications and procedures. Then hospice staff drug the person into a coma with a one-size-fits-all drugs, and they die of the drugs, starvation, and dehydration. On previous programs, I've gone into more detail, but tonight I want to concentrate on pertinent information regarding our guest story. All programs are archived and can be accessed on blogtalkradio.com or Google Marcia Joyner, Betrayed by Hospice. In 2020, how many COVID-positive patients were moved into nursing homes, infecting those considered most vulnerable to the illness, and hospice was called in to help because they know how to handle death? I'll say they do because they create it every day. Those innocent elderly were murdered. And it continued in the hospitals, but under different scenarios, as in the COVID protocol. And this is what our guest, Dana, experienced with her mom, Rebecca, who was only 59. So what's the COVID protocol? Remdesivir was the only FDA-approved drug, and it was listed as emergency use for COVID. Its benefit-risk ratio was and is still being determined. And we know that every medication has its risk, But in the case of remdesivir, those that were paying attention to the data a year after the onset of COVID were very apprehensive and downright afraid of remdesivir, but those in power refused to listen. And most of you know how I do my research and go down rabbit holes, and I did on this one. There's a lot to dig through, so I'm just going to touch on the high points. Many doctors noted acute renal and liver failure in patients that were taking remdesivir. Not that Fauci, Big Pharma, and the mob listened or even informed us. Little info that I'd like to share with you is remdesivir was developed in 2009 by Gilead Sciences to treat hepatitis C and respiratory syncytial virus, but it didn't work. So it was repurposed for Ebola and Marburg viruses in 2014 but it didn't work for that either. So in 2020, it was, again, repurposed to treat COVID-19. It's pretty clear it's not working for that either. It's kind of like a third strike, it's out. 
But as we say, follow the money. In the United States, it cost $520 per vial with a double dose the first day, which comes to $3,120 for a five-day treatment. Outside the U.S., the cost is a little less at $390 a vial, which comes to $2,340 for a five-day treatment. And another site stated that it's $557 per injection. And so the cost has gone up, and it, it may be even higher now. The website states, before taking remdesivir, if available, read the patient package insert. But how many people were even asked if they wanted to take it? How many actually gave permission? And did they give anybody a package that explained to them what the side effects were? No. FDA had revoked approval of known life-extending drugs containing monoclonal antibodies, which mimics the body's creation of antibodies against disease, and were more effective than remdesivir, which had a 53% death rate, which is higher than COVID itself. And with the backing of Big Pharma and Fauci, ivermectin had been refused to patients, even if their doctor wanted to administer it. What's the cost of ivermectin? $94 for 20 three-milligram tablets. There's a big difference in cost, so no money to be made here. But just like penicillin and aspirin, ivermectin is derived from nature. It was approved in 1987 and successful to treat the world's most harmful tropical diseases. Most, I can't pronounce, but one of them, elephantitis, which you may be familiar with, and scabies, as I can pronounce that. It's one of the safest drugs on the World Health Organization list of essential medicine and has eradicated endemic parasitic infections around the world. So many studies demonstrated its potent ability to inhibit SARS-CoV-2 and recovery from COVID-19, but it was not approved for use for covid in fact, many doctors were cited, and it was prohibited to be given to any patient with COVID, even though patients and families requested it. It was denied. It is also used to fight parasitic infestations in animals. Now, I bring that up because people were so desperate to get ivermectin that FDA warned people not to self-medicate by taking ivermectin for animals. FDA stated it was not approved and should only be used in a research setting as part of a clinical trial while continuing to use remdesivir, which was killing people, and trials were not done on it proving any safety. In spite of ivermectin for COVID undergoing 90 studies from 963 scientists, 133,842 patients in 27 countries it showed significant improvement for mortality, ventilation, hospitalization recovery, and viral clearance. The FDA would not back down. How many died because of their decisions? And how much money did Big Pharma and others make off the fact that our loved ones were guinea pigs losing the battle for their life? And then we've all heard about the ventilators being used for protocol and what happened with patients. I'm not familiar with ventilators, but I'll share a little bit of what I found on my research. 
And I'm sure you can find data to support either side of the argument in most cases. The largest analysis of hospitalized COVID patients to date finds that most did not survive after being placed on a mechanical ventilator. Out of 2,634 patients, the out, that outcomes were known, the overall death rate was 21%, but it rose to 88% for those that received mechanical ventilation for COVID. One nurse stated that the patients were placed on ventilators rather than less invasive CPAP or BiPAP due to fears of the virus spreading. And Minnesota Senator Scott Jensen said that Medicare pays three times as much if a patient is placed on a ventilator. Again, follow the money. But I believe taking care of a patient should always be first in trying to save life, but I don't think that's what happened during some of our country's darkest hours. I believe many doctors are genuine and caring, and they wanted to do the right thing, but they were circumvented by arrogance and greed. I want to quickly list a couple of resources. Michelle Young Doers was on during our last program, and she shared some personal stories from her book, Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice. Michelle is a former hospice respiratory therapist turned warrior for the patient and exposes the reality of hospice in this book. Stealth Euthanasia, Healthcare Tyranny, written by Ron Panzer, is another great book. HaloVoice.org is an excellent resource to provide information before or during a crisis. LifeLegalDefenseFoundation.org has access to pro-life attorneys in most states. And Murdered by Hospice Facebook group is another resource. Tonight, my guest is no stranger to pain and advocating for her mom. She is Dana Stevens and her mom, Rebecca Stevens who, as I mentioned, was only 59 when she was a victim of the COVID protocol. Her story is heartbreaking as to the circumstances that led to her ultimate death and betrayal by the system. In so many cases, the system failed the patient, not their body or any illness. Dana has become an advocate in fighting for people and trying to educate others about the dangers before it happens. She feels like so many of us that she failed her mom in her time of need, but you'll hear what she was up against. Dana, I certainly understand how you feel, and I know that you've given interviews before, and I appreciate you coming on to share with our listeners tonight about what happened to your mom. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Um, and like you said, my, my mother was only 59 years old, so um, she had a lot of life to live, um, and uh, that was stolen from her. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm really glad that we're, we're talking about the, the protocols, and, and I know that, um, you know, hospice had a huge part of it, um, but the, the COVID protocols is definitely what led up to um, the, the ultimate uh, ending in this situation. So thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on. So was your mom, did she have any medical issues during her lifetime? Um, she struggled with um, 
COPD um, for about 15 years. Um, and, you know, she wasn't oxygen dependent. Um, she would have a few flare-ups during, um, during the course of a, a year, um, maybe be hospitalized two to three times within a year, um, just needing extra supplemental oxygen breathing treatments. Um, but, you know, she knew exactly, um, you, you know, the protocol that, um, that they would give somebody with COPD. Um, she, she would get, you know, the breathing treatments, the steroids, um, but nothing ever really invasive. Um, and it was enough to, um, to send her home in the end. Um, so that was really the only, um, issue that she had. And, and, uh, it was September of 2021, um, when, and she had a, a pulse ox and her oxygen saturation was a little bit low and she was dizzy. Um, so she um, decided it was time to, to go up to the emergency room because um, it had been maybe about a week of her feeling that way. Um, so I, you know, dropped her off there, and I started having some symptoms also, and uh, she ended up uh, getting a PCR test at the hospital in the emergency room, which showed that she was COVID positive. And um, <clears throat> that next day I went myself and also because I was having the symptoms and I tested positive for COVID also. Now, and, maybe, um, can I stop mm-hmm. you one second? Because when you said yeah. you dropped her off, right, um, mm-hmm. that during that period of time you were not allowed to just go into the hospital. I just want to make that clear with people. So, I mean, it's not – Typical that you just drop your mom off at the hospital, but they would not let you come in at that time. Exactly. That, yeah, that was okay. the, the culture at that point in time. Um, right. You know, there were a lot of places that were still, um, you know, they were still doing the, the one way down the, the aisles in the in the store and everybody, you know, was still wearing masks. And, um, and yeah, you're exactly right. I wasn't allowed in, okay. so I, I dropped her off in front of the ER, um, made sure she got in, um, and then left. So, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so, um, you know, like I said, I, I went and got tested, um, and and I actually had a pretty bad case of, of COVID, um, and, you know, I had a, a lot of the, the brain fog and all of it that comes with that, and, uh, and, you know, I have all of my mother's and my um, text messages between us. And, um, you know, she was terrified because she knew what was the, the rumors going around of what was really going on in the hospitals. Um, and so she went in saying that she was vaccinated because, you know, there were rumors going around <clears throat> that it was uh, the, the unvaccinated were being treated differently, um, mm-hmm. getting different um, medications, um, and you know, they, just overall um, being treated completely different. So she went in and said she was vaccinated, and um, I I said to her, I don't blame you um, for saying that. And uh, you know, after everything was said and done, I've I've gone back and looked at the the medical records and. And within those first two days where they thought she was vaccinated, um, <clears throat> they were ordering all the appropriate treatment for her, the, the appropriate amount of steroids, the um, ox- supplemental oxygen, um, and, and the breathing treatments. And 
So two days later, according to the medical records, um, all of the appropriate protocol treatment for COPD, all of that uh, was taken away. It, and, uh, and then they started to order the remdesivir. And I even have the text message of her um, saying, my pulmonologist ordered the remdesivir. I'm scared because that was really the only thing that I knew of um, to warn her about was mm -hmm. to not take, not to let them give the remdesivir. Um, so I told her, tell them no, that you don't want it. <clears throat> and she just, you know, said she was scared. So um, through medical records, they ordered it and reordered it five more times, five additional times, and she declined it each time. Um, and um, so I'm not really sure how they found out that she was um, unvaccinated, um, and that's always been something that has kind of haunted me. I've, I've never known how they found out, but I do know that recently um, I've been hearing some reports about a tracking system for um, the vac you know, the vaccinated um, and unvaccinated. Like, I guess there's codes in, in the system where they can see if you're vaccinated. So I'm not sure if that's how or if she slipped up. But uh, so well, I'm pretty sure that She had been mm -hmm. to the hospital, you know, previous years. And so, I, mm -hmm. and I'm just thinking that when she said she's vaxxed, they wrote down vaxxed. And for a couple of days, they just went along with that. But in the records, if previously it had been noted that she had not been vaccinated, then it appears that at that time, a two, day, two or three days in, that they knew she wasn't vaxxed. And it documented that. It said that in the medical records. And then her total treatment changed. Everything changed. Right. Yeah, they discontinued um everything and then started ordering and they were pressuring her with the ventilator um, right away but but not to the extent of a few days later when suddenly her all of her medical records and and all of them and this is with every family that i've i've met so far that's um had the same uh protocol hospital protocol situation um with their loved ones they'll they literally put in their unvaccinated female, you know, unvaccinated male. So this is how they describe the patient um, in, in the medical records over and over and over again. So the first two days wow. said vaccinated female, 59-year-old vaccinated female, and then two days later, all of that changed. And not only the medical records, but the treatment, um, you know, uh, the way that they were treating her completely changed. And, uh, so it started to say um, unvaccinated female, and uh, they were not giving her the appropriate amount of oxygen. She um, she used a three-liter oxygen machine at home for for flare-ups, and um, the pulmonologist was only ordering her two liters, and her saturation, um, you know, started to really decline um, once all of her, you know, uh, treatment was taken away. And uh, mm -hmm. she was begging for at least the three liters that she was used to during flare-ups, but they kept her at two liters. The medical record patient on two liters keep at two liters. So they did that for a whole week where she was only on two liters of oxygen. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, but as far as the, the way that she was being treated, um, 
you know, in a lot of these uh, these COVID hospitalized patients, um, the isolation. Um, she was on, under 10 days of quarantine. Um, no family allowed in to advocate, um, and you know, so I was only able to speak with her through her cell phone. She was sending me pictures of what her saturation was, and there were certain nights where um, everything was off. Her oxygen was turned off. The monitor was off, um, and they kept telling her home health care was ordering her a new oxygen machine, which, you know, now that I've spoken with so many different doctors and nurses, the oxygen is on the wall behind the patient. And most, you know, modern hospitals don't use machines like she you know, used at home, it's, mm-hmm. it's on the wall. All they would have had to do was turn the lever to turn her oxygen up, and they wouldn't do it. So they starved her of oxygen for more than a week. Um, and and uh, also through medical records, you know, I, I told you that she, um, she said no to the remdesivir five different times, and they kept reordering it. So they gave it to her against her will, um, on day 10. Well, even and, for knowledge, uh, right? I mean, right, you did not right. find out. Uh, and that's something I'll point out to our listeners. Getting the medical records is incredibly important, and you can get that mm-hmm. while your loved one is in the hospital or in hospice if you go that route. You do not have to wait mm-hmm. until they're gone to review the medical mm-hmm. records. Right. So. Um, yeah, so it's important right. that you were, you know, that you're looking at this, and this is information that you did not know. They did not discuss it with her. They did not tell her what remdesivir would do, what the risks were, what any side effects were, and they mm-hmm. started it on her, even though she had refused it five times. Five times, right? And uh, <clears throat> as far as the the medical records, I have many people that I've met who are still trying to get the medical records, or they'll They'll give, um, you know, partial um, parts of it, but not the entirety um, of the record. So um, the way that I set things up, um, it was in such a way where I kind of tricked them into giving me the records without them giving them enough time to really think about it. So, but I can go into that later. But so she, uh, I think that, you know, by day 10, um, she was starting to desaturate, and I think I had spoke with you about this, that it was the morning of October 6th. Her saturation was pretty good, um, and it was later that afternoon where they started to administer the remdesivir, and by that night, um, they did a, she was in such distress, having chest pain, um, and you know, and that was also a night where, and this is this was the culture at that time. You know, in 2021, when it was all uh, like I was saying, almost like a witch hunt against the unvaccinated. A lot of these nurses, um, they were treating patients differently, um, and <clears throat> they wouldn't call uh, when she would press her her call light. They would leave her there. They would make fun of her. She wore hearing aids, um, so they would make fun of her hearing impairment and. Uh, you know, so that's how she was treated. Um, she was told she was there because she she didn't get the vaccine, and basically this was her fault. And uh, <clears throat> so she started having chest pain that same night, um, 
the remdesivir um, was introduced. And um, they came in, finally came in to do a blood gas test. And from being starved of oxygen for so long and with what we know now was the remdesivir um, being introduced, um, uh, she only had 51% oxygen in her bloodstream and a normal body holds 97%. So, um, and uh, it also shows with uh, the medical records that um, her liver enzymes were elevated. You know, everything, it just shows, um, it really paints a story. A downhill when turn. The remdesivir, right, from when the remdesivir mm-hmm. was introduced to her starting to go downhill. And, uh, and then they, uh, once they realized that I had been documenting everything, um, I called an ethics meeting and uh, thinking that that would make any kind of a difference. But in reality, I feel like it only made things worse. Um, I felt like she was targeted even more. Um, and I felt like I was targeted more also because they eventually um, blocked my number from the nurse's station. Um, and so it was kind of like because I was trying to advocate for her, they didn't like that. Um, <clears throat> so, um, but like I was saying, the treatment never got, um, it didn't get any better. Um, uh, and also Go back to medicine. Mm-hmm. Tell the nurse, they would come by and just wave at her because she would call on the call button. And right. since you were on the phone, you could a lot of times hear exactly what was being said. And what did that one nurse tell her about breathing? So this was uh, before they had started the BiPAP. This was one of the nights that I actually still have nightmares about um, where her oxygen was completely off. And this is when they were still trying to convince her that home health care was ordering her a new oxygen machine. They were lying to her. Um, Mm -hmm. And the nurse comes in, and my mother is in a complete panic because she can't breathe. She's telling me it feels like she's drowning. This is what my mother's telling me. And the nurse comes in, and a lot of these nurses were travel nurses, but this nurse tells my mother, if you couldn't breathe, you wouldn't be speaking and slammed the door and left. And then you're right. And this was the, the pulmonologist, the doctors who would wave to her while she was in complete distress. Um, I mean, she she told me it felt like she was drowning and she was begging for help. And these doctors, there, you know, there would be the window there. They would walk right past her smile and wave and leave her there like that. And you know what that's <laughs> like. If you have a hard time breathing, how you panic. If you can't breathe, mm-hmm. you're going to panic and you're going to get worse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with your oxygen turned off and somebody being very flippant towards you, mm-hmm. that's just rude. Yeah, it's horrific. And and unfortunately, I mean, my mother's story is a complete horror story, but, I mean, I've I've just met so many other families and and. All of them are so similar as far as, uh, and I bring up again, the unvaccinated, the way that the unvaccinated um, patients were treated, um, it was different than, than other patients. So, um, but it is it's horrific and, and even scarier. It's still happening and they're still holding patients hostage in, in, in most states um, under the guise of, of 
you know, COVID and, uh, and they still have the restrictions going. Um, some states are still not allowing patients in to advocate, um, and they're still using the rigid protocols. Nothing's changed. Everything is still happening. So that makes it scarier. It, is, it was frightening. And it, it's mm-hmm. frightening to go to the hospital. It you know, is, people yeah. just won't go. So you said after you met with the ethics um, folks, letting them know that you were receiving, I think you showed them your, your mom's text messages, that mm-hmm. they talked to you like they were going to do something. But then, you know, when you make the comment that they quit taking your call, I'd like for you to explain mm-hmm. that you, after you called, you called from a different number, another mm-hmm. relative's number, and they picked up immediately. So right. you're not just, you're actually, not just making that up. Right. Um, right. I had my my um, teenage son with me, and, you know, I just I could tell that their attitude towards me was a certain way for a reason um, because I – I was advocating for my mother, and they didn't like that. So this is before they moved her to ICU, and I actually have recording. I have in my car, and I call the hospital five different times for my phone. I have it on speakerphone, and um, it, it wouldn't go through. And I even had the um, the operator try to connect me. Still wouldn't go through. So I take my, my uh, teenage son's phone, and it goes right through, and I have all of this on recording. And I, and I said um, – I'm pretty sure that my number has been blocked, um, you know, from the nurse's station. And, and she's like, no, we're, we're just busy. Um, both lines were busy. And, and I'm like, well, it went right through for my son's phone. And uh, so I'm pretty sure they blocked me because um, it, it happened like that more than one occasion after, after the um, ethics meeting. My, mm-hmm. my phone number would no longer go through. So, so that's what happened with that. <clears throat> But okay. I was mostly, um, you know, uh, speaking with my mother through her cell phone. That's the only way that I was able to, um, you know, stay informed with her on exactly what was going on. So. And I'm sure during this time that she's fearful because you're not there and she can't see mm-hmm. you. And, you know, they, she's got people acting rude to her. And, you know, mm-hmm. the treatment stops. She knows that she takes breathing treatments, and now she's not getting that. I think they were giving her Robitussin right. um, as her treatment. Right. Yeah, that was, uh, that was before they finally did the blood gas test. And this is, you know, this is what brought her to that point was like I said, and, and I think I should, you probably saw the picture of that whiteboard where it shows all the medications that the patient's on and it only said Robitussin because they had withdrawn all of her medications, all of, you know, all of her um, COPD medications mm-hmm. and they were only giving her Robitussin and it was almost like they were trying to bully her into their protocol and if you didn't want the remdesivir, and if you didn't agree to the ventilator, then you just don't get anything at all. Right. That's exactly that what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, on day 10, once the um, the pulmonologist calls you and talks mm-hmm. to you then, right? Right. I believe it was day 10. Um 
so I, yeah, I finally get a, and this is 10 days of not speaking to a doctor. And, and, and I like to bring this up because the, there's three pulmonologists that my mother had been, you know, their patient for four years, you know, cause she had COPD. Well, these uh, three pulmonologists, pulmonologists, they, they knew my mother and she knew them um, because they, they worked out of a, a different office, but also had um, hospital privileges. So, um, but they happened to be her pulmonologist in, you know, on the COVID floor and ICU. Um, so, yes, I finally get a call from the pulmonologist. Um, and during that call, um, I was told basically that she doesn't look like she's going to get any better and that he can bring up the, the ventilator again and basically that she's going to be moved to ICU. And, uh, and in this phone call, <clears throat> I was pretty much coerced into the DNR and like many stories. I mean, I've heard at least a thousand now. I have a, you know, a private group and a lot of the other groups surrounding this COVID protocol, um, you know, we've all kind of come together and our stories are all so similar. Um, you're coerced in designing a DNR. You're told either that if you do not sign the DNR, you're, it will give them no other choice but to put them on a ventilator, which is illegal coercion. You're not supposed to do that. Um, or that the family can't see the patient or that the family, they won't uh, be giving the patient food or nutrition unless they sign the DNR. There was even one patient that um, I know of who was told that they would be able to see their family if they signed the DNR. Like they were, they were doing things wow. like that, completely mm -hmm. unethical. Um, Absolutely. Because they know if if that DNR is signed, um, you know the the patient is put on a ventilator and that's that. They get all their incentive money and. They're, you know, the family can't come back and say, you didn't do everything you were supposed to do. Well, the DNR was signed. So it's, it's fraud and, uh, and it's illegal. And, and I don't know how they can get away with that. I mean, that's not coercion. That's um, strong-arming somebody. You know, we're not going to give mm -hmm. you breathing treatments if you don't sign a DNR. I mean, right. or if you put her on a ventilator, which you already knew was risky, and if you put her mm -hmm. on a ventilator, then, you know, we, there's one one set of rules this way, but we need you to sign a DNR. I mean, that's that's so wrong, bullying a family mm -hmm. into doing that. And yeah, you're right. And I mean, a, it's happening. But yeah. that, to me, it, wow, mm -hmm. that just makes me ill. I'm not signing a DNR for anybody. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, and what makes it even more... Yeah. Um, it makes it even more uh, devastating to me, um, you know, just going through the medical records. And like I was telling you before, luckily I, I was thinking quick on my feet about the, the records before they could hide anything. But this pulmonologist had the nerve to put that, um, that I signed a DNR against my mother's wishes. So when I saw that, I was like, wow. So, yeah, yeah. Coerce you uh, into doing it, and then make it look like your mom wanted to live, but you didn't want to, her to let her live. Right. Wow. Um, yeah. 
there's lots of other disturbing things in the uh, the records too, but that was one that was pointed out to me by somebody that was looking through them. But um, but but this is what they do. Um, it's you could even go as far as saying it's it's part of their protocol. The you know uh, the manipulation and the bullying and um, because they get their huge uh, government um, incentives by doing mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Well, like the ventilator, so. putting somebody on the ventilator, you get three times mm-hmm. the amount. And if you say that they, you know, passed from COVID, mm-hmm. something COVID-related, you get more money. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That. Yeah. Yeah. So they tell and you. I think, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say that um, because my mother was so adamant about um, about not being intubated with the ventilator um i mean they they tried talking her into it tried talking me into it and my mother was extremely claustrophobic and she that was something she was extremely adamant about that she did not want to be on a ventilator so i wanted to respect her wishes the best that i could um and i think that that infuriated infuriated them because that was part of the larger payout and uh, the $39,000 um, in Florida, um, I think it varies by state. So now That's close, you know, I think, to what all of mm-hmm. them are getting. I think you're – that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so but, knowing that they wouldn't be getting that, um, you know, and she even sent me a text message towards the end that um, they want her out of that ICU room, and and this, you know, was their plan because she wouldn't – go on the ventilator then you know the only other way out was you know what they forced her into well but you so on day 10 the pulmonologist does talk to you and then he tells you we're moving her to ICU right because she's gotten worse and he actually at that time did he bring up palliative care um yes um, they were bringing it up to her before they even mentioned it to me. She she told me that they were going. So on day 10, they started her on the BiPAP. And, you know, from so many whistleblowers, so many uh, respiratory therapists and, and nurses and even doctors coming forward about, about the way that they were using the BiPAP machines um, with such a high velocity of, of um of air blowing into the lungs so many of these covid patients you know they didn't start out with uh with uh co what they call covid pneumonia a lot of it was damage that they had done from the treatment you know with mm-hmm. with the remdesivir the the bipap and then um definitely the ventilator for those who were ventilated but i mean it's known to cause collapsed lungs and holes in the lungs and um, so somebody who already suffers with COPD, um, to have that amount of air being blown into their lungs, um, you know, I, I would assume that that kind of helped in her decline. Um, so we, it was the BiPAP, and then once they realized that after doing another um, blood gas test that her blood oxygen wasn't going up, but at that point, we didn't know that they were giving her the remdesivir behind her back. And, you know, and I found out later on that there was a huge um, remdesivir recall, 11,000 vials 
nationwide through Gilead um, for having glass particles in the vials. And, and this has been my theory all along that I just feel like that is the main ingredient. It, it makes lots of sense. But um, so say my mother was someone who got uh, remdesivir with uh, glass particles in it. Um, what's that going to do when the, the glass particles land in the lungs? It's going to, uh, you know, create more um, inflammation and, and, you know, more fluid is going to accumulate in the lungs and create what appears to be pneumonia, what they want to call COVID pneumonia. Um, so uh, if, I think it was the, the 13th, October 13th of 2021, when, when I did get the call from the pulmonologist saying that he'll get better care in ICU and then kept bringing up the ventilator again. Um, and I believe that was the first time palliative care was brought up. Um, so I was told that there's a better, you know, patient ratio, patient to nurse ratio, she'll get better care. Um, and then I later found out looking through medical records that before my mother even left that room on the COVID floor that that pulmonologist had ordered for my mother to begin end-of-life care before she even left that room. Wow. So that was already ordered, yeah. And they started morphine at then. They started morphine too, right? Is that when they started it? Yeah. They started morphine. um, It was before she left the COVID floor because she was having such severe chest pain and pain in her ribs. Mm-hmm. And so I asked for something for her uh, for pain because I almost okay. felt like whatever whatever made her better, that's not what they wanted. So I had to almost fight for them to give her any kind of pain relief, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, in a normal dose, you know, at that point I think they were only giving normal doses of the, the morphine. So, so she was eventually um, – brought up to the ICU, and then, yes, uh, that same night, um, hospice, palliative care, all of that was mentioned, and I think I had told you that um, a hospitalist went in to assess my mother, and they had started her on uh, IV uh, Persidex. I think I always say that wrong. It's like a sedative, but she was completely out of it, and I knew that they had started her on something. Um, and I was watching through the window with the hospitalist, a woman doctor in there with her, and my mother's sitting in the ICU bed crying with this teddy bear that I had bought her from the gift shop, and, and she was smiling and crying, and like, none of this makes any sense, a little strange, but later found out it was that uh, whatever that medication they had Pre- um, started her yeah, on. Yeah, it's Presidex. It's Presidex. After you told me that, I looked it up. And it is actually Mm -hmm. a sedative that's used to sedate a patient um, that is in ICU that is perhaps going to be going under a ventilator so that Mm -hmm. before they put the tube in, then, and it's the same thing that typically they use for colonoscopies is Mm -hmm. Presidex. So, and it's also used for anxiety. So that's what they used. And which made me wonder, were they planning on giving her the ventilator even though you had said no? Were they planning on doing it anyway? Oh, definitely. I've come across so many stories of them ventilating patients against their will. Um, I mean, Mm -hmm. 
they didn't care, and they would do it without sedation. I mean, I have many, uh, you know, victims in my my private group where their loved ones on, uh, you know, on, I mean, they would have to watch them as they did it, too. They would, it, I don't remember every, you know, every uh, case, but there was a few people who I've spoke that know that the family was um, on Zoom, like, you know, talking to their loved one, and mm-hmm. they were ventilating patients without any sedation. And so some oh of these uh, families, you know, had to witness their loved one being strapped down to the to their bed by their arms and ventilated against their will oh, uh, yeah. with no sedation. So this has been something pretty common that I've heard a lot about, and I can guarantee that that's what they were hoping would happen yeah. to their mother. So the and difference, you have nobody and I don't to advocate. I mean, right. there's nobody there uh, to protect you from them. Exactly, exactly. Um, So, you know, I'm sure that's what they had in mind, and that was the same uh, night that um, I was told if I didn't sign the DNR that she would be ventilated, and I knew at that point that I didn't trust any of them. I knew something was wrong. My mother knew something was wrong. Not Mm -hmm. sure if I ever sent you the video, my mother in her own words saying what had happened um, up until that point, that she was scared. and that they were making fun of her because she, you know, uh, wore hearing aids, that they would leave her there, you know, uh, without any oxygen. So I have, uh, she is the one that pretty much, she was documenting everything from her deathbed um, from the beginning to the end. I have, I have everything. I've kept everything. Um, yeah, so, no, you didn't, you hadn't sent that to me. I, I haven't seen that. Yeah. yeah, I have, I have all of it. Um, and so it was, that night, the first night she was in um, ICU where uh, um, the hospitalist, like I was saying, I was watching through the window and something seemed off to me. And then the woman, the hospitalist comes out and says, um, uh, I don't think that your mother is uh, coherent enough. She can't make her own medical decisions. I'm like, well, I mean, to me, it looks like whatever you drugged her with is making her seem like that. But, you know, I was speaking with her earlier and she seemed just fine. So that was the night that they made me sign the DNR or she would have been ventilated is what they told me. Um, so they I just don't think that's legal. It's not legal. Now I know. I mean, it felt wrong at okay. the time, but after yeah. speaking with attorneys and medical experts, I know now is coercion. It's illegal. Um, it, it's manipulation. Yeah. It's manipulation. I mean, it's, a, yeah. it's a bully tactic. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. Um, but at, at that point, I felt extremely uncomfortable leaving her. <clears throat> um, I was allowed, and they made an exception because, you know, I had made such noise about what they had done to my mother up until that point. And my mother wasn't quiet either. Um, you know, my mother was a wonderful advocate for herself, but, you know, she could only do so much by herself. Um, but she, you know, she wasn't being quiet about the way she had been treated. So they let us stay up there until 930 at night that night, and uh, which they were, you know, making other people leave by like, I think, five or six. So they actually let me sit up there with her um, until about 930. 
when it was time to leave, I was terrified to leave her. So I was mm-hmm. threatened with security. Um, and before I left, I told them, I made sure everybody heard that I had a camera hidden in, in the ICU room and, uh, and that I would be on the phone with my mother on FaceTime all night. So I'm not sure if that's what stopped them from ventilating her, but could have been. I it could have been that I, I told them that I was going to be watching. Um, <clears throat> so um, and they threatened to call security on you because you wouldn't leave, right? Yeah, because you wanted to stay with your mom to protect her, mm-hmm. right? And the and then an, another thing I bring up: what are we on day? Well, by then. It was more than 10 days. Quarantine should have been over with. But then I do hear that in ICU, they are a little bit more restrictive when it comes to visiting hours. But, um, but you know, the quarantining should have been done. You're not considered to be contagious anymore after the 10 days. So they were continuing with, you know, under the guise of COVID when it was really they, they didn't want an advocate there. They wanted to finish what they had started. Um, And they wanted to get the biggest payout that they could uh, from my mother, and I was in the way of that. So, you know, security was called on me more than one time. Yeah. And your mom had said, you know, when when they tell you eventually, you know, a nurse just comes out and says, you know, she's not going to make it, and – when they tell her, she writes, or it's in the medical records, she doesn't want to leave you. And and that, right. you know, I mean, when you say that there are things that you find out in the medical records that otherwise you wouldn't know because they do write down what the patient says in many mm-hmm. cases. Um, I guess it depends on which nurse you get. But she's mm-hmm. even more concerned about you during this, which shows what kind of person she was. You know, in yeah. spite of all of this, she was worried exactly. about her child or her children. And her grandkids, yeah. And, her and that's how she she was always like that. And and it was a little bit confusing to me. I knew that, I knew that she was scared during all of this, but especially in, in ICU, for her to put on such a front and then finding out later on how absolutely terrified she really was. And, mm-hmm. you know, I have nightmares yeah. still about this. And, oh, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. Some of the, the noting that they put in, you know, um, patient um, shaking, tearful. Patient says she doesn't want to die. Patient says she she doesn't want to leave her kids and her grandkids. And, right. You know, yeah. just, just things like that. And and I don't know if that's, you know, normal procedure. I mean, I'm sure to, to put whatever the patient is saying, but it just feels more diabolical given the circumstances of, of what was taking place. Um, right, because they me. knew she had the will to fight. And mm-hmm. why can't you let people fight? I mean, why not give her her COPD medicine, give her the amount of oxygen that she needs, and see if mm-hmm. she can make it through? I mean, but they yeah, didn't exactly. give her a chance, and the fact that she was not vaccinated was a strike against her. Right, and they needed because that number. They needed that unvaccinated death number to skew the numbers 
to create right. more fear in the general public, and and that was the reason they were doing it. And right. that's why because the unvaccinated she, were treated differently. Right, because if <laughs> she came out and they said unvaccinated COPD lady comes in with, you know, has pneumonia and survives, that go against, goes mm-hmm. against everything that they're touting in main media. Mm-hmm. It's the exactly. unvaxxed that are the problem. Mm-hmm. And right. they say that over yeah. and over again. Yeah. And also... Um, Another thing I found out through medical records that, you know, my mother didn't go in with um, pneumonia. The pneumonia was caused from being starved of oxygen and then, and then uh, you know, uh, neglected and the remdesivir and all the other poisons that they were giving her and then the lack of the proper treatment. So she didn't even have pneumonia. It, show up in her x-rays until day 10, which is the same day they started the remdesivir. So, right. Coincidence? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so um, either. Um, I looked up some information. In, um, mm-hmm. <coughs> in Vancouver, British Columbia, um, it says the hospitals are full of vaccinated, including triple vaxxed. Vaccinated mm-hmm. 415 and the unvaxxed, 152 per, per million. Mm-hmm. And it says, at this point, the fully vaccinated population accounted for four in every five COVID cases, nine mm-hmm. in every 10 hospitalizations, nine in every 10 ICU admissions, four in every five COVID deaths. And this, Mm -hmm. so even in the beginning of February 2022, things were looking terrible for the fully vaccinated population. Now, Mm -hmm. this is in Australia, but I would imagine if we had statistics like that in the U.S., they would be somewhat similar. Right, but they would never show that to the general public. Of course not. Um, So to let your mom live and get out of there safe would go against, there are statistics that they narrative. were approved. Yeah, and she was combative because she was speaking mm-hmm. up for herself, and she had you on the mm-hmm. phone. They didn't like that at all. So she probably lived longer because you and she were advocating. Right, and you're right about that because, um, you know, uh, I mean, this whole thing has consumed me, and this is all I do is I – I research and, you know, going on, uh, what, two years now. Um, But, you know, you know, I even uh, go to a lot of different, um, uh, sorry, I can't think. I go to different um, meetings and conventions and I've met a lot of the, you know, world renowned doctors who have been completely blacklisted and uh, shredded, you know, uh, licenses taken um, but I, I met with Dr. Peter McCullough. He's one of the, the top oh, leading cardio- cardiologists in the world, um, second most peer-reviewed published um, cardiologist. But um, So I had the chance to ask a question because I was, you know, curious. You know, out of the vaccinated patients and unvaccinated patients who received this rigid protocol, um, what's the percentage um, you know, of vax versus unvax that 
that live. And he said it, it makes no difference. 66% of whether it be vaccinated or unvaccinated, 66% of the patients who receive this FDA rigid protocol die. So it's the same amount. So it wouldn't have mattered if you're vaccinated or not. If you received this FDA protocol, you know, 66% die. Well, exactly. So what is, Mm -hmm. it's remdesivir and the ventilators Mm -hmm. that are killing the people, not COVID. It's the treatment, exactly. Right. It's the protocol that they refuse to give you anything else. Well, it's just like when I was talking about the ivermectin, people went to their veterinarians, uh, guilty, and asked their veterinarians to give, you know, to sell them ivermectin. So in case they got COVID, they would have something there. Now, if people are willing to take a medication for an animal just because their doctor either refuses or is told that he cannot give ivermectin. And mm-hmm. why do they care? Why can't those people, and it's like Patty um, Myers, which I'm going to be talking mm-hmm. to, but she even asked, I'll sign anything. Just let my husband have ivermectin. I will sign any paperwork you want me to sign. Use him mm-hmm. as part of your experimentation. Do the research. Give my husband ivermectin. Why can't mm-hmm. they do that? Because they don't want to prove that ivermectin mm-hmm. works and rendesivir. Look at the cost difference. The cost exactly. difference. You know, three, and they're, three I mean, four thousand dollars. Yeah. Versus the, I mean, and the government, the government is most definitely incentivizing these hospitals to get the outcome that they want. You know what I mean? They weren't paying people to to be saved. Only if you follow this rigid protocol, even with a, you know, the end result being COVID nineteen as cause of death on the death certificate. You know, this was a step by step incentivized protocol so why wasn't the hospital why weren't they incentivizing to do the opposite to where people were living they weren't doing that so it just makes it pretty evident that you know they were paying for the outcome that they you know desired well it's the same thing with the vaccination i mean Mm -hmm. nobody pays for a vaccination well you do because your tax dollars are paying for it but nobody goes Mm -hmm. in and pays for it i mean all over the place you know you could just drive in in your car stick your arm out and they'd inject you and they don't Mm -hmm. know what kind of underlying uh, comorbidities that you have and what it's going to do that that didn't matter Mm -hmm. if you meet the age requirement six months now then you know you get the jab money that's being Mm -hmm. paid for and that's why everybody offers it free because they get to you know the government is paying them money for it and a lot of people don't realize that you also get a free coffin with that too because they well, you know the uh, FEMA they're paying for funerals you know when has that ever happened um so you know there's a lot that people don't know and and right. like you were saying when you go down that rabbit hole like I didn't go down it I fell and I fell hard once I realized what was really going on and it was even more terrifying for me because when I really figured out how deep this went, my mother was in the process of being forced to sign sign the hospice paperwork 
So, you know, here I am, you know, falling down that rabbit hole. Um, and I just remember almost fainting, realizing what was about to happen to her and, you know, just how disgusting and how corrupt and uh, it's just, there's no words for it. Well, and trying to save her, you know, you were hitting brick walls. Exactly. So go ahead and, and let's go forward. Then we can, then we can go in reverse. But so they've told you that they want you to put her on palliative now. And that's such a misnomer because palliative winds up being just the front door to hospice. So a nurse is having that conversation with you, I believe, and your sister. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Well, before even that happened, you know, once my mother was in ICU, um, you know, as soon as I would get off the elevator, um, I would almost feel as if – the hospitalist would be waiting for me just to wrap to me to tell me that my mother's dying. We need to sign the paperwork. And so this was an ongoing thing. Anytime, and those three pulmonologists that I mentioned, though they never showed their face again, they would hide from me when I would come up there. If I did see one, he'd, you know, dart the other way. Um, But, and then I had my mother telling me that um, these uh, doctors weren't going in to assess her, you know, check her lungs or or anything. They were only going in there three to four times a day to tell her that she's dying and she needed hospice. Oh, my God. Yeah. So so that's what, you know, it is. It is cruel. Mm -hmm. And so um, that went on, and I almost felt this at this point, that they were torturing her into submission, either sign the paperwork, do hospice, or we'll continue to accidentally forget to give you breathing treatments. We'll continue to somehow, you know, not try to figure out why your oxygen is cutting off constantly. So it was Mm -hmm. things like that. And I honestly, I mean, she was tortured um, until she finally signed. And uh, so we were... You know, and then at this point, I came to the point where I was trying to get her out of there, and I'm I'm saying, you know, if they're telling me that my mother is dying, then I want her home with me. I at least want her in a facility, and uh, they refused. Um, they told me she was too critical to move. She, they did another COVID test, and this was, you know, twenty something days later, which you're not supposed to be contagious anymore. Um, they did another COVID test came back positive so because of that they told me she was too critical and too dangerous to move um so they were holding her hostage so Mm -hmm. at that point i was calling attorneys i was being told that i would have to go up to the courthouse to get an injunction against the hospital um to stop them from trying to murder her um and i was working on that and as they were torturing my mother and she was telling me, I don't know how much longer I can do this because they were literally keeping her oxygen. At that point she was on the heated high flow oxygen at at an extremely high percentage. So she was on a lot of oxygen and she wasn't holding saturation anymore. They had continued to give her more um, emergency use authorization type um, medications 
um, that now I know probably finished her off. Um, so I, I even called the police and was told that they can't go above an ICU, what an ICU doctor says. And I actually am working on getting the recording to that. I have the transcripts for it. But um, so, so basically she was tortured into submission. We were forced to either do general inpatient hospice um, through hospice of the comfort or our only other choice was hospice detox. And I always bring this up because it makes no sense at all that if we had chosen to do hospice of the comfort, they were willing to transfer her to the different hospital downtown, same, um, same hospital, uh, different location. So she wasn't too critical to move then if they, you know, if they were putting her subcontracting her underneath um, hospice of the comfort. But point. too critical to bring home, too critical to go to a hospice facility, too critical to go to a completely different hospice. But so we were basically forced into hospice VTAS, general inpatient, and this is where they um, they basically murdered her in the ICU room that she had already been in for 10 days. Um, so they... Um, they discharged her from Advent Health, readmitted her under hospice detox, and my mother was given a date and time to be executed, a date and time where they would start their end-of-life care. And so that is that was horrible. Right. So she the knew date, it was coming. Her date scheduled a date to execute her. Yes. I, I just want to make and sure she, that the listeners knew. heard that. Right. And, yeah, and I think about that pretty often, how horrifying it must have been. I mean, I mean, I, I, I feel like, you know, inmates who are given an execution date are treated more humanely than my mother was. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. During now, during this. this period of time, is she, are they bringing her liquids? Is she got, she doesn't have an IV. Are they feeding her and giving her hydration or no? They are because they know I'm watching like a hawk. Mm-hmm. So that was the only thing that, that, you know, my story is a little bit different than many, many others. I mean, a lot of these stories. And what's also different about my mother's story is that she was completely awake and, um, you know, comprehended everything that was going on because she wasn't forced onto a ventilator. So a lot of these other stories, they were able to stop nutrition, uh, you know, and they would use that as an excuse of why the patient couldn't get nutrition on a ventilator. Um, mm-hmm. But right. so they were unable to ventilate my mother. And um, they, on on the day that, of her execution, um, uh, we found in the medical records that a doctor – uh, created a new D- DNR, it was a fraudulent DNR, saying that my mother was um, medically, basically she was a vegetable, which was untrue, and we have all the proof it was untrue because um, my family and I went up to the hospital at 9 a.m. Um, because, you know, hospice, end-of-life care was supposed to start at 1 o'clock. So we went up there, and, you know, my husband 
was up there with her for a few hours. Um, my sister was up there in the room with her. You know, they were having conversation, um, you know, and they were trying to say that my mother was basically in a coma and signed a new DNR, which is a fraudulent DNR. So, and not because that, she's talking there was never to any you. doctor. Completely. She knows what's going on around her. She's talking. She, my husband said that, you know, she, he was hugging her. She was crying, you know. So all of this was fraud, this new DNR that was signed um, 30 minutes before they started the process. So, so you know, I had my, um, my two sons. My youngest at the time was only four years old, and then my older one. Um, 12 years old and then I also have custody of my twin nephews so the four boys were up there with us and the lead nurse um, this was an argument she tried to tell me they were not allowed to come into the ICU to say goodbye to my mother uh, because it was a liability and at that point I had done my research and I said that you have complete shield blanket immunity with anything COVID related and that it was not a liability, and uh, my kids are going to say goodbye to their grandmother. And uh, she eventually agreed, and uh, <clears throat> so I brought, you know, they made us put all the the gear on them, and uh, my kids had to say goodbye to their grandmother through, through her ICU window as my mother's sitting in her bed crying. So while the nurses were, you know, talking, they, they were just standing there talking in a group, um, I, I opened the door and I told them, run. And they ran to her bed and gave her a hug. And oh, good, of course, good. with us, we were, you know, the, the nurse says to me, oh, you give an, uh, you give an inch, you take a mile, Some, something to that effect. Did she, she just want to me. slap her? Yeah, I would have really oh my liked God. to do that. So, I mean, that's you just... know, after the, yeah. Well, what I usually say, you know, the culture going on in the hospitals at that point, and what's what's also really um, disturbing to me is about a month after this happened to my mother, um, Advent Health um, won in court against the the mandate. So then I'm telling myself. So these nurses and doctors who were basically going after these unvaccinated patients didn't even want it themselves. They didn't want the vaccine. They won in court against the mandate. They didn't want to be vaccinated. So for them to to treat these patients in this way when right. they weren't vaccinated either and didn't want the vaccine, it just, right. I couldn't believe it. But, but I, I feel like at that point, um, most of these, most of the staff, the nurses, the, you know, the respiratory therapists, you know, I felt like it was almost normalized at that point, um, the, the treatment, the way that they were treating these patients. Um, uh, and I've described it before. They were almost like robots, no emotion. Um, but, but yeah, they, it's as if they normalized the cruelty um, you know, the way that they were treating these patients and families. So, But it's like they're not people. At that point, they're not right. looking at these as someone's loved one. And mm-hmm. I don't know how they do it. You know, Marty and I have talked about this very often, 
that, you know, hospice nurses that come in day in, day out, murder somebody, I, how do you do that? And this nurse that came in there, now was she a hospice nurse or was she a hospital nurse that came in that day for the execution? She was a hospital nurse, um, and that that was another lie. You know, when my mother was forced into signing the hospice paperwork, we were told that some, you know, somebody with hospice would be there. Um, nobody was there with hospice. There was a, there was never a hospice nurse, a hospice doctor. Nobody showed up with hospice. It was just a it was no two social RN. worker, no social no. worker, just, nobody there to provide no. comfort to the family of the loved one no. that they're fixing to execute. Right. In fact, yeah. I asked for the chaplain to come and, and pray for my mother, and he wasn't allowed into the, the room. So I stood in the hallway in front of the window, um, and he would only pray for her over the phone. So that has been seared into my mind forever, too, you know, them, you know, taking that away from her, you know, mm-hmm. Any any type of comfort, right? Taking everything, everything, everything. Her family, everything. So, so you know they they come in. It's just it's just just you and your sister and your husband at the time. So uh, it was a little bit before one o'clock, and only my sister and I were allowed into the room during the what I call the execution. Um, and I was standing on one side of the bed holding my mother's hand. My sister was on the other, and um, the nurse comes in, asks if we're ready to get started, and uh, I felt really put off by the, you know, by all of it, like just the way everything was going. Uh, She had about 10 vials in her hands, and... Um, one by one, she started just unloading them into my mother's IV. And at one point early on within the first few vials, um, and I'll never forgive myself for this part, but I, I don't know why I did this, but I squeezed my mother's hand and, uh, she woke up and she started shaking her head no. She looked right at me and looked up at the nurse, started shaking her head no, and she put her hands kind of over her face as if she was, like, trying to protect herself. And, uh, yeah, so I'll never get that image out of my head. No, it will remain forever. Yeah. Yeah. So the nurse didn't save her. She just continued to unload, 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 and then, and this is something recently that my sister brought up to me. It wasn't just the 10 vials. The The other nurse who was assisting brought a few more handfuls in over that, you know, the, the course of the maybe hour and a half that this went on. Um, so, you know, we've, uh, with the help of um, a medical expert and uh, an attorney who, who volunteered to look at, at the case, um, and actually, uh, you know, like I was saying, I tricked them into giving me those records. So some of the records from hospice are missing, but we have more than enough, um, you know, from the 
when she was readmitted under hospice, they didn't know that that was sent to me, and I think it was an accident. But hospice has been uh, unwilling to give me the rest of the records. So from the records that we do have, within about an hour and a half, the amount of medication that was put into my mother's IV, I mean, you know, it was in a group text with uh, ICU nurses from UK, from Canada, all over the world, all saying the same thing, like they murdered her. Um, Yeah. Well, let me read off because we had talked about this. You had given me, Mm -hmm. because I had asked you, what what did she have in the vials? She had Mm -hmm. morphine, Ativan, Dilaudid, and Haldol. All of those drugs, like 10 vials, Mm -hmm. and she emptied them into the IV bag, all of those drugs. Now, Mm -hmm. there is no way that anybody ever could say that that was not a kill shots, plural, and that the intent was to end her life. And why? Why can people not die? You know, why couldn't she stay there? Because she refused to go on a ventilator. And they wanted to clean that bed out and get somebody else in there and get their money, get their blood money. And that's what it yeah. is. Right. It's I even had a text message from my mother the, the day before um, they started the end-of-life process. I mean, I, I have a text message from my mother saying they took something from her that could never be, you know, that she'll, she'll never forgive. I can't remember word from word, but... She said, they're, they're not making enough money off of me. Um, and, you know, so she knew. She knew why they were doing it. She knew they were doing it. You know, she was fully awake for it. And it's just sick. And she wasn't and, dying. And, and she wasn't, she, I mean, she wasn't she was dying. not dying. And she was 59 years old. Mm-hmm. But they refused yep. to treat her for COPD. They gave her toxic mm-hmm. drugs that killed her, and then because they didn't work quick enough and that they couldn't put her on the ventilator to get that $39,000, they mm-hmm. came in with all of these drugs to free the bed. That's exactly I tell you, what they did. They, I would yeah. love for you to you know, have an attorney that's got some kahunas that will stand up to them and fight it through to the bitter end. And I think, you know, I mean, with hospice and with these COVID patients, the problem is that the administration signed in, it was already in, but they have added COVID in there that no hospital, nursing home, assisted living can be held accountable if the person comes in and dies of COVID, even if they made a mistake. Because during this time, this is emergency use only, and they had that caveat mm-hmm. in there. I'll I'll find that bill for you and send you the link to it. Mm-hmm. Do you know right. what I'm oh, talking about? I've been researched. Yeah, the CARES Act and the PrEP Act, and and uh, yeah. See, you know, it holds for them, them not to liable. be able to exactly, but for them to be able to lay the foundation for all these stipulations for the CARES Act and PrEP Act. You know, for them to do that, it can't be, it can't involve fraud. You know, that ends up, you know, counteracting, you know, the entire thing. So because there's 
so much fraud involved in, in, in these protocols, um, especially when they have gotten so sloppy, like in my mother's case, you know, uh, but, you know, forced euthanasia, you know, you know, and all the other fraud that was involved in my mother's case, you know, they can only be protected to a certain degree. But when you have enough proof of, you know, criminal activity, uh, murder, forced euthanasia, fraud, fraudulent DNR, I mean, it's all going to come mm-hmm. crumbling down. In, well, I hope so. In, uh, I mean, we're, we're going to be interested in seeing, you know, how this progresses. Because mm-hmm. even with the um, couple of days prior to that, you a hospice nurse had come in and wanted you to, to sign up, but you didn't. I mean, mm-hmm. they're bringing this to you. You're in shock. You're exhausted, and you're trying to figure mm-hmm. out what is the best to do to protect your mom. But because you mm-hmm. wouldn't sign the papers right then and there, she goes off mm-hmm. in a huff, slams the door, and she's mad at you because she didn't mm-hmm. get that quota. Right, yeah, this was two days before my mother um, had actually finally signed, and she didn't want to do it yet because she wanted to say goodbye to her grandchildren. So the rep that had been there for hours talking with my sister and I in the lobby and then met us up at the ICU room um, to speak with my mother, once my mother decided, no, we're not doing it today, yeah, she stood up and basically said we wasted her time and, you know, ended up slamming my mother's ICU room door and, you know, because she wasted her time. Right. And then, you know, ultimately two days later is when my mother signed. But, but yeah, that was, uh, that was the way my mother was treated because she wanted to see her grandkids. Because, yeah, because she wouldn't let this woman make that money. And mm-hmm. I believe you told me, um, and I'm assuming that you have the Medicare records for this, that for that, hospice was paid $5,000. Is that right? right? Am I, is that right? right? Yeah. I, um, and then the hospital visit was mm-hmm. $550,000? Um, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was close to, um, it was close to 500000 Um, and the only way I was able to come up with that idea is, uh, they ended up having the nerve to send my mother a bill for $22 that I guess she was on Medicaid. So Medicaid didn't cover the $22. So that gave me the idea um, because I had tried in other ways to get an itemized list um, because at that point I didn't know I had my suspicions about the remdesivir, but I hadn't gotten that far within the medical records yet. So I was trying to find out, exactly how much was paid out, trying to get an itemized list of what medications were given. So I kind of tricked the billing department with that $22 bill I got. And I'm like, oh, this is for, you know, insurance purposes. Can you kind of go over everything? So, yes, I ended up finding out that um, hospice for their hour and a half of, you know, murdering my mother, uh, they were paid close to $5,000. There was a, they were um, a thought, 500,000 for the bill, but because that because she received the five courses of remdesivir, she you know, they got the overall 20% bonus on the overall bill. Wow. So, I mean, 
Yeah. All of the money. That's what it's about. Mm-hmm. And I know something we didn't state in the very beginning of this, but I wanted to go back to. When you were talking about the grandchildren and you told them, run, and they came in there to tell your mom goodbye, your mother mm-hmm. lived with you, and she took care yeah. of the four children all the time. So that she mm-hmm. was in their lives, a constant in their life. It wasn't mm-hmm. like, you know, she sees them, two, you know, two times a year or something or every other week, mm-hmm. you know, occasionally. She lived with them. This was devastating to your entire family. And that's what was. people don't get, you know, when you're talking to an attorney, that we're not talking about somebody that we make money off of them or they're getting a salary so they're bringing in and that's helping pay bills. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with these are our people, they are our loved ones, and we want them in our life. And there is no monetary value put to their life. And we don't care how much money you want to make off of them. We love them for who they are and that the world has gone totally greedy and it's all about Mm -hmm. money is just, it is beyond my comprehension. Yeah, I agree. And, yeah, we, I mean, she was like a second mother to them, um, you know, because she did have COPD and, and you know, she, she had her um, hearing loss. So it just always worked out for us. You know, I never had to put my kids in daycare. You know, she we called her like a stay-at-home grandmother. So she was extremely close to, to the boys. And, uh, you know, right. them having the nerve to try to make them say goodbye to their grandmother through a window, and uh, right. and it didn't affect them at all. Um, the nurse and, and the staff. So. Yeah, and there's just yeah. no humanity to that. Exactly. So, um, we had just a few minutes left, and I want to, if there's anything else that you wanted to add, uh, did you want to give them your your Facebook group? Or is that something you want to share or no? Yes. Um, if you can find it, I'm pretty censored. I've, I've been on a few other um, interviews where they tried to look it up and couldn't find it, but um, it's COVID malpractice and negligence. So, And you have yeah. to answer questions because, you know, don't come on there because you want to start some problems for her. She's fighting mm-hmm. for her mom. And the COVID protocols are draconian, and they've mm-hmm. been proven to not work and – you know, no, uh-uh, this is wrong, and people are standing up for their rights, and it is their right mm-hmm. to how they're being treated in a hospital environment. And nobody has that right to say that their life is going to end because they refuse a protocol that they know is killing people. And whether they're vaxxed mm-hmm. or unvaxxed, it should be my body, my choice, and people are not being given that, and your mother and you were not given that choice. Mm-hmm. So I, I hate that your mom and so many other people are murdered, you know, with the COVID and, you know, by hospice. It is wrong, and I, I, I wish there was a way that I knew that we could stop it dead in its tracks. But in light of that, you know, my thing is research everything and find out what's going on. Knowledge is power. So to all of you, do the same thing that Dana and I do and go down rabbit holes and research. Mm -hmm. 
So, Dana, thank you so much for coming on tonight and sharing your story. It's just, you know, hearing it again, it's heartbreaking. But people need to know what's going on so that they can protect their loved ones. So Exactly, yeah. Thank you for having me on. And, you know, I just feel like at, at this point it's, it's more about, um, you know, getting the truth out there and uh, hopefully saving, if we can save one person, um, you know, there's, uh, there's early treatment um, protocols that you can find that will keep you out of the hospital. And I think that's the, the most important thing with this is, is even though the, the early treatment protocols are completely being hidden from the general public, there's ways of finding it. And, uh, you know, you just have to advocate for your loved ones and, uh, stay out of the hospital and, uh, and, you know, we, we just all have to, to come together and, and tell the truth on, on what's really going on. So thank you so much for having me on. Well, before you go, um, that there is that website, do you know which that is, um, protocol kills, I think is if you yeah. go out there and you look under pro, protocolkills.com, and mm-hmm. there's some inf- interesting information there that will tell you, I think it's on that one, Dana, correct me if I'm wrong, but will tell you yeah. what you need mm-hmm. to do. There's links on there. You have to kind of dig through it. But it will tell you what you need to do mm-hmm. to stay healthy um, and to mm-hmm. keep from, you know, things like zinc and C and um, shoot, vitamin something else. And, yeah, vitamin uh, yeah, D, that's- yeah. That's a really good website. It also, unfortunately, has lots of the same stories just like mine, but um, there's also a lot of uh, extremely important information, and they also have um, a hotline, um, hostage hotline. And unfortunately, like I said, it's still going on. But protocolkills.com. Okay. Thank you. And for everybody out there that's listening, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you, Dana, and we'll be talking later, okay? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Good night, Marty. Good night.